Hi, everyone. Welcome to the April 30th, 2021 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Patty Calhoun, standing in tonight for Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you for joining us. Finally, the U.S. Census Bureau's numbers are in, and it looks like there has been a big enough increase in population in Colorado to earn us an eighth congressional district. Not a huge surprise, but where the new district will be located has yet to be determined. Eric Sonderman, political pundit, columnist for Denver Gazette, Colorado Politics, this is clearly going to occupy a lot of your time. What do you think? Well, as you say, Patty, there's no surprise here that Colorado gets this extra seat, but it is nice to have it formalized uh, and have it official. And there were not as many seats moving around from, you know, blue states. This was uh, obviously Colorado is now a blue state. But if you look at the pattern writ large, obviously there are a number of red states who picked up additional seats at the expense of blue states, whether it's Illinois, uh, New York, et cetera, et cetera. Even California lost a seat, which has never happened uh, in the past. Uh, the big question is where this goes. There are all kinds of permutations. There are all kinds of proposals out there. Um, you know, what do you do with the Boebert seat? You need more bodies in it. Pueblo wants out of it. Does Pueblo go on the Eastern Plains? Do they create a Northern Colorado district between Greeley and Fort Collins? Uh, lots of machinations. I do not envy the people on the Congressional Commission uh, doing this. And we're not going to know this for a half year or more, although I think there will start to be a few proposals you consolidate around. And there are a whole lot of politicians out there, and I won't give you the list, but it's anyone with a beating heart who are at the hairstylist right now and clearing their throat, warming up their larynx, uh, hoping that the new district is one that they might be able to compete for. Also joining us tonight, David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. David, where do you see this 8th district going? Well, it'll be up to this new commission that's been created of of 12 members. The Colorado people amended the Colorado Constitution in 2018 with a referred measure from the legislature that the legislature unanimously approved to say we'll have a a new and different commission for uh, congressional redistricting because they've been trying for decades on different, you know, supposedly nonpartisan or bipartisan commissions uh, that that hadn't worked very well. So maybe this one will. One of the things you'll look at for success is – when you see the map, does it look like a bunch of rectangles put together, or does it look like a, a salamander uh, with its head twisted one way and the tail curling way over in some other direction? Uh, does it keep communities of interest together? And so this, this is a, a key thing, is I think people rightfully say the West Slope deserves its own representation, and there's places like Grand County, uh, which is uh, partly East, east Slope, uh, but that have much more in common with there than they do with, with Boulder and Lafayette and so on. Second, you've got uh, southern Colorado as a community of interest, uh, Pueblo, the San Luis Valley, all that, and then, of course, the, the plains. And so even as population grows in the Denver metro area, uh, we can reduce political disharmony in the state by making sure that these communities have their own representative. Also joining us remotely, Penn Tate, former state legislator and also uh, founder of Tate Law. Penn, you've been in Colorado a long, long time. How do you see this going? Is it going to be a salamander? You know, I don't think it'll be a salamander. If it is, it'll be a very small one. And the reason for that, it's sort of 
um, ties to the issue that David laid out is among the various things that this new commission has to, to consider and abide by is equal population. So all of the districts have to have essentially the same number of people in them. What that means because of where our population of growth has occurred primarily on the front range, the Eastern Plains, the Western Slope, Northern Colorado, Southern Colorado, those districts probably won't be changed that much just because they haven't experienced as much population growth. They may expand to pick up more people, which is where the rub may be. Where all the infighting uh, and the inside punching is going to be is in the front range, because right now there's a, a battle brewing about whether the new district is in the Denver area or in Adams County or Arapahoe County. Um, I don't envy this new commission that's just been created wading into this for the first time and having not just the, the complication of doing this work, but adding a brand new congressional seat. That's going to be tough. And rounding out the panel, Natasha Gardner, freelance journalist and founder of the Denver Letter. Natasha, you are going to have plenty to be writing about in the Denver Letter. What are the big points you see here? Well, I think if you were to set up a Venn diagram here, and on one point, one hand, you have uh, politicos who really, you know, eat, breathe, and drink uh, politics, and on the other side, you have amateur cartographers. This is your moment if you're in both of those those hobby groups. You know, grab your markers and and start figuring out where this goes. As already has been mentioned, we saw a lot of the population growth on the front range, so it's it does seem likely that we're going to see some movement in 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 this part of the state. But overall, I think one of the things that's interesting to look at is that this was a delayed because of um, the pandemic and it's going to delay all kinds of things in this process not only looking at the statewide distribution but down on on the municipal level and even uh, if you want to look specifically at that the Denver City Council is going to change and they'll be redistricting as a result of this so we're going to be talking about this on the statewide level but we're going to feel this in our neighborhoods as well so yes I will have plenty to write about but so will every other journalist in the state. But meanwhile, journalists are staying busy reporting on efforts to recover from the economic blow that the pandemic has caused. And they are continuing. Mayor Michael Hancock is proposing a $400 million bond measure he says will create around 40,000 jobs. Hancock will be asking city council to vote on whether or not to include his plan on the November ballot. And he says the city will be consulting residents on how the fund should be distributed. But, David, you first have the opportunity to suggest some ways those funds should be distributed. How about keeping them in the hands of the people who earned them, who actually contribute to the city by doing productive things? Uh, the econ- U.S. economy grew at a 6.4 percent rate in the, the first quarter, so the economic recovery is, is already well underway and going strong. Second, the people who have been left behind by this need help now, not sometime in 2022 with a bunch of uh, borrowing he wants to borrow over $400 million, which means the taxpayers, the small businesses, the renters, the homeowners in Denver are going to have to pay way more than $400 million uh, for his scheme once you, you take uh, interest into account. And if you think that the mayor and the Denver City Council are so smart and competent that you should take over a half a billion dollars away from the working and productive people in Denver and give it to them to spend, I just suggest you go to Denver International Airport and see how well they, uh, they spend money on their big schemes. Penn, you are a smart candidate for mayor. Do you think the city can handle this $400, $400 million bond issue? 
You know, Patty, the devil will be in the details. I haven't seen the full proposal, but typically when the city embarks on a program like this, um, to David's point, there's usually an effort to add this additional borrowing and the ability to repay it back to dovetail it into the existing revenues that are being collected. So what I don't know now is if this if this proposal will come with some sort of property or sales or some other tax increase to pay for the borrowing that'll be required. The other thing that's important, and, and this is where the devil's in the detail, and I and I and I will give City Hall credit for saying they're going to go to people and ask where, where residents think the spending ought to occur and where the projects are needed is you've got to be careful that these jobs that you create aren't short-lived. I mean, you can fund a bunch of one-time construction projects, but the problem is, is if you aren't thoughtful about what you're doing, you have a bunch of projects, you fund them, you build them, and in 18 months they're done, and the people who worked on them are out of work again. So you have to be thoughtful about what you're doing here. Natasha, you're a Denver resident. Where would you like to see this money going? Oh, how much time do we have? I, I've got a long list, and I'm sure that most Denverites do as well, from interse- intersections and maybe um, they feel could be safer to bigger uh, building projects. I think what's key here is as we start to have this, whether it's a listening tour or however we get this community input into this conversation, part of it has to be is what is Denver as a city and what do we want it to be? Because what we thought that answer might have been even 12 months ago has dramatically changed, particularly as we move into this next stage of the pandemic. How we use our city is different. And how we use our city in three months is going to be different too. So I'm hoping that as we're planning, we're not just going to the projects that were already, you know, sort of conceived of and thought of for a long time, that we're really thinking outside the box and coming up for ideas for what the Denver of the future could be. Um, And then, of course, voters would have to approve this. So there's a lot of things that have to happen before this is a done deal. Including Eric writing about it, I'm sure, for the Denver Gazette. What are the points you think people need to pay attention to? Well, I mean, to Penn's line, uh, which is true, that the devil's in the details. That's the problem here. There are no details. Uh, to my thinking, this whole thing is ass backwards. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that on the air. When but, I'm hosting. But I, ju- but I just did. Uh, on most bond packages, you go out and the city, with a lot of community input, evaluates what the needs are, and then you develop a bond package in something approaching an affordable price range that addresses the top tier of those needs. Here we're doing it backwards. We've set a number out there, 400 million. And by the way, if you think 400 million is going to equal 40,000 jobs, I mean, that's just another one of those economic pie in the sky numbers that has no meaning to me. But the thing is backwards. Identify the needs first. This is obviously driven by the idea of stimulus. Stimulus can be good, but as David pointed out, the economy is growing at a significant, almost a roaring level now. The feds are throwing stimulus dollar after stimulus dollar. The state is now in on the action. The city does not even know within a $200 million range how much money it's getting out of the latest federal package. And color me a little dubious that the city is the right mechanism, the right organism to provide its own big stimulus check. Denver being what it is, you know, liberal voters passing every possible ballot measure, you know, they'll vote for a a soggy cheese sandwich and they may be handed a soggy cheese sandwich come this November. Okay. 
With that yummy vision, we're going to move on. (laughs) As coronavirus vaccines roll out, schools are determining their protocols for returning to in-person learning. Twelve superintendents have joined in asking the Colorado Department of Health and Environment to immediately end all mandatory quarantine for schools. Meanwhile, it's been determined that all major Colorado universities will be requiring students, faculty, and staff to be vaccinated before returning to the campus. Penn, how do you think this is going to affect schools this fall? You know, we knew from the inception of the pandemic that schools from K-12 to higher education were going to be impacted and that this was essentially going to be, for better or for worse, a lost year for students. That's just unavoidable. Uh, I am a bit concerned with some of these superintendents demanding that any sort of um, protocols regarding um, quarantining be removed right now. When I look around, I, I ask myself, what is the value now at this late date of requiring kids to go back to in-school learning. You've got five or six weeks left. You aren't going to make up for what happened this year when everybody was learning remotely. What's the rush in bringing people back in now? I think that time and attention is better directed towards a calm, a rational, and a science-driven approach to making sure our students and teachers are safe with the the coming school year, like some of the colleges and universities have done. This is gonna be difficult. I think we'll feel the ripple effects of this for the next couple of years, but I I hope science and safety um, are the driving considerations, not convenience um, just to parents who need someplace to take their kids. Speaking of parents with kids, Natasha, this hits close to home for you. What do you think about these new proposals? Well, I think um, I've learned a lot about phonics in the last year, and I think many parents are in the same boat. And this, it's fair, I think, for the superintendents and principals to ask questions like this in the same way that I would have encouraged restaurant owners or small business owners at any point of the pandemic to share their perspective on what's happening in real time in their environment. That doesn't mean that anything is necessarily going to change, because I do think that this decision is going to be based on science and and what the health department um, believes is safest for our students. Students. And in some ways, I think the clock may run out on this because we do only have a few more weeks of school left. Uh, as far as the vaccines um, requirement for, for next fall, I think that's interesting, too. But as a parent, I know that anything that I sign my child up for, one of the first things that they're going to ask you for is a vaccine form. So that is not a necessarily a new thing for, for students to have to look at putting together. Um, and, and there will be exemptions. And I think that that's an important part of the conversation. So, so much of this has, um, is changing. I, I look at, you know, the in recent information that we've gotten about how the uh, virus acts on surfaces. And I remember back last March, I was like, can someone please get a study rushed through that gives us some real information on how long this vi- virus lives on surfaces so we know. So there were plenty of things that we did last March, say wiping down your groceries, using disinfectant um, all the time that we now know may not be have been necessary. That doesn't mean that we were wrong to use them at the time. So in any of these conversations about school, I just want that to be part of the conversation as well, because we are learning in real time. We are building the ship in real time. The pandemic has not worked the way that any of us probably expected it to, and that's okay. And Eric, your alma mater, Colorado College, just flipped and said they were going to require vaccinations. What do you think about both the college plans and the local schools? 
Yeah, I mean, a, a few points very quickly. On the college level, I'm totally fine with that as a, a requirement of showing up on campus uh, in the fall. As Natasha pointed out, there will be exemptions. There will be waivers for some specific health conditions. As long as the waivers are reasonable, waiver opportunities are reasonable, I think it is, given the pandemic, uh, an entirely responsible thing for major colleges and universities to impose. In terms of the quarantine and the superintendents, I, I agree with, largely with both Penn and Natasha. I think it is awfully late in the school year for this to be much of a focus. Uh, I don't even think it's five or six weeks of the year left. It's probably closer to three or four with some festi festivities after that. Um, I think there are two real stories that we're not focusing on that should get more focus. One is the number of kids. There have been some studies, Chalkbeat and others have had reports on this, who have just completely disappeared over the last year where schools, it's not that they're in school, it's not that they're on virtual online school, no one knows where they are. They've just sort of disappeared out of the system and that is a very worrisome uh, factor out there. And secondly, on the positive side, the whole school choice idea. Uh, you know, Denver uh, School Board doesn't have that memo yet, but the whole school choice idea has gotten more legs as a consequence of this pandemic because parents have been forced to make choices and get out of the box. And I think that is a debate that will continue even after the pandemic is history. And David, I'm guessing the school choice debate is one you're interested in. Well, people and lots of parents have gotten interested in it too when uh some schools run by the for the benefit of the the unions rather than for the the students have kept not so much in Colorado but in a lot of other places kept schools in a, in a permanent uh, lockdown and it's been a catastrophe uh, for students all over the country and how much learning they've they've lost this year. Uh, I guess it depends on what a major university is. Colorado State University, which is certainly major, has said that their vaccine requirement only comes into effect once the FDA gives final, full approval to a vaccine. All these vaccines we've got now are just under a, a special experimental exemption. Uh, the Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction I, I, is, may, may, is a major university, too. They're not doing a mandate, nor are the uh, community colleges, which certainly in terms of the number of people they have are, are quite major, and understandably because they're, they're not residential. Uh, as to Penn's idea of a science-driven approach, man, that would have been a great idea. Too bad we never really did that one. Six feet, three feet, all these arbitrary changes, this imaginary Wizard of Oz dial from the Department of Health – Wow, that would be a great alternative universe to live in if our approach had been scientific. And finally, a new climate action bill is in the works, and Governor Jared Polis has publicly stated that he'll be vetoing it once it arrives at his desk. The goal of the bill would be to make it easier for air regulations to enforce limitations to greenhouse gas emissions. But Polis says the bill would give the Air Quality Control Commission too much power over the economy. Natasha, you've been following this topic for a long time. What do you think is going to happen with this climate change bill? Well, I think an important part of this is it's sort of looking down the road, looking at legislation that's already passed with goals in mind of when things are going to happen and saying, are, are we on track to do that? And, you know, kudos to anyone at the state legislature. I mean, I have plenty of trouble keeping track of pandemic time right now. So kudos to them to looking down the line. Um, but I think this shows one of the major problems with the, this, this conversation in particular, that you um, might be get, able to get a lot of people in a room to agree that climate change is something that we need to address. How we address it, how quickly, 
um, who would enforce that? That's where the, the details get quite um, a bit tricky, and that's what that's what we're dealing with right now. So um, even if this bill proceeds and the governor would veto it, I don't think it's the last time that something like this comes around in the state, because ultimately we did set some uh, some. Uh, our ideas down on paper about what we do want to meet. And eventually we're either going to meet those or not. So expect this. I mean, we're looking 2025, 20, 2030 and beyond. Uh, we might be discussing this uh, in, a, in a decade on this show. Eric, you ready to keep talking about it? I think whether ready or not, uh, Natasha is right. We will keep uh, talking about it. it. It makes a statement when even Jared Polis, who doesn't suffer for lack of progressive credentials, and when he is saying woe to an action of the state legislature, and the state legislature is further out there on that flank, and this is not the only issue on which this is the case. But with respect to this issue, uh, I don't think there's any big disagreement about the climate goals. The, the discussion is about the mechanism, and I think Governor Polis is essentially correct on this one, which is there is too much reliance on an unelected, rather anonymous regulatory body that gives them too much power and too much control. And lastly, I would just say I hope Governor Polis buys a fair amount of ink for his veto pen and that this is not the only bill that he uh, exercises that veto pen on, if necessary. David, do you think he'll be getting out the pen often this session? Uh, hopefully. I've, I'm, my dad served in the, as a Democratic representative from Northeast Denver in the Colorado legislature from uh, first elected in 1964, and his last term was in 92. And so I, I remember that time when Demo the members of the Democratic Party in the Colorado state legislature were in favor of democracy. And what this bill is is the opposite. As Whatever you want to do on the, the climate issue, it's something huge, has tremendous consequences for the people of Colorado, and that's exactly the kind of thing that should be debated in the legislature where you can listen to all voices, have different perspectives. And this bill is to take over, basically turn the management of Colorado's economy over to, uh, as Governor Polis said, one un unelected board that lack, uh, with dictatorial powers uh, that lacks the broader mandate and expertise. Legislators ought to legislate and not try to give di dictatorial powers to unelected officials. Penn is a former state legislator. How do you see this playing out? Well, um, I, I appreciate David's sentiment. I will just leave it at this. Um, we all know that, that, that climate change is a huge problem. It's got to be addressed. Um, this is one of those where we have to find the right fix for the problem. This empowering this board to this extent may be a bridge too far, I get that, but the need to have some measures in place and some way of, of regulating um, emissions uh, to reduce the greenhouse gas effect and some other things, uh, it's urgent, uh, it's vital, and it has to happen right away. So even if the governor vetoes this bill, there's still enough time in the session to bring something forward that addresses the issue, but may not necessarily rely on this particular board or commission as the way of, of, of addressing the issue. Now it's time to get to our favorite moment of the week, and we're going to have to be a little speedy. First, we're going to start with the man who did what I've never done in that chair, dropped a profanity. Okay, Eric. <laughs> I uh, claim uh, claimed to fame. Uh, it's hard to be in this chair and, and in, in your shoes, Patty. Uh, disgrace. 
The Colorado Judicial Department, which was under all kinds of exposure and scrutiny early in this session, speaking of bureaucracies, they are moving so slowly on this investigation. They have now announced that there's a $350,000 budget. Uh, they're in the process of interviewing firms. How about a little more speed, a little more dispatch, and not just a focus on the specific charges, but a little bit using this as an opportunity for a broader discussion on some of what ails that department besides the particular complaints of harassment. David, your disgrace? Well, it, it's no surprise that this week there have been racist attacks on uh, uh, South Carolina Republican Senator Tim Scott because South Carolina uh, black Republicans have been the subject of racist attacks back from the days when the very first were elected, like Joseph Rainey and, and uh, Robert DeLange. And it's no surprise that Twitter boosted uh, those racist attacks on uh, Senator Scott by making it a trending topic, because Twitter is a very racist company. But I guess I am surprised that, unlike in the olden days, the people doing these racist attacks actually pat themselves on the back at the same time for supposedly being anti-racist. And Penn, your disgrace. Well, same topic, different subject. Um, uh, the actions of Mitch McConnell directing or asking that the Secretary of Education not encourage school districts to incorporate the, the 1619 project in the curriculum and the uh, uh, just unfathomable statements of Rick Santorum claiming that uh, there was nothing of value on this continent until European settlers came and took over the land and, and conquered the indigenous people. And Natasha, wrap this one up. Um, maybe not disgrace, but the most distressing news, or some of the most distressing news this year is internationally, as we look at the case counts going up in India. Um, obviously, there, there's so much opportunity right now for America as we um, look at our vaccination rates increasing and our supplies changing to look out on an international basis. We're already doing that, but just want to shine a little bit of light on the fact that the, this is not done. And um, as global citizens, the United States has um, a huge huge impact on the rest of the world, and we need to step into that role again. So true. Eric, a very short, nice. Uh, uh, there were three astronauts on Apollo 11. Two of them received much attention for landing on the moon. The third, Michael Collins, who stayed in the mother spaceship as it orbited around the moon. A very lonely experience. Michael Collins passed away this week at age 90, a life well lived. David, your postage stamp niceness? The governor of the legislature for allowing... Uh, consumers to buy meat directly from ranchers and to buy uh, takeout alcohol from restaurants. Penn, you're something nice. To the city of Loveland, whether they fired or encouraged um, resignations, but getting rid of the, the two officers who um, roughed up a 73-year-old woman with dementia uh, and then laughed about the way they treated her. And Natasha, the nicest person on this panel. I have to say the image of two women sitting behind the president during his address this week was pretty powerful. A powerful image, yes, for our young children, yes, for women in this country and across this world, but for every, every person. Thank you. That's really all the time we have left for today. I'm Patty Calhoun. And on behalf of all of us here at PBS 12, thank you for watching and good night. Thank mm -hmm. you.